ask you to stand now for the reading of the gospel. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Mark. John the baptizer appeared in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And people from the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And just as he was coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens torn apart and the Spirit descending like a dove on him. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved. With you, I am well pleased. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Y'all can have a seat. Oh, guys, it's so good to be with you. Um, Happy New Year. If we have not yet seen one another in this new year, if we missed one another um, over the Christmas uh, season, it's great to have you all with us. Welcome to Christ the King. My name is Ashley. I'm the priest and pastor here if we haven't met, and we're thrilled to get to start this uh, new year with you. Today marks the shift for us. Um, liturgically speaking, in the church calendar, we're entering into a new season. Um, as of yesterday, actually, the Christmas season has officially ended. And so if you didn't have your tree down, like before Saturday, you weren't late. And now you are late. I'm sorry. It's time. It's time for it to come down. Um, I, I saw, it was funny, I was visiting with somebody yesterday and they were like, you know, taking the, the lights off of your house, which this is what I love about the church calendar. One of the gifts is like now something as like mundane and arguably not fun as like taking lights down off of your house um, can be a kind of, you know, spiritual practice. <laughs> uh, it's a kind of discipline uh, in this season. So anyway, we've, we've turned the page. We're now uh, entering into the season of epiphany uh, for us which means that these next few weeks uh, from now all the way to the beginning of Ash Wednesday, which will be the start of the Lenten season, the church is calling us to reflect on something specific. Um, And I want to think about both things today, which is the season of Epiphany, what it's about, um, and particularly why the baptism of Jesus, which is the assigned reading for today, in the gospel anyway, and all the other texts, of course, pointing at um, this moment in the life of Jesus, what they have in common and what they might um, tell us about each other. What is the season of Epiphany really all about? Um, because let me just say, maybe for those of you who might be new or visiting or we don't, haven't spent a ton of time together, um, I really love the church calendar and um, love the gifts of this tradition, all of them. And yet, um, if, if it were just the thing, if the thing was just for the sake of it, you know, the thing itself, like just the church calendar, And it wasn't really ultimately a means of seeing Jesus in a new way or experiencing more of our faith or deepening in our faith, Um, then it would be nice and all, and I think I'd probably still be pretty into it. But ultimately, it just, it has to be in the service of something else. You know what I'm saying? So as much as I'll talk about the season of Epiphany, I need you to know that it only matters to me in so much as it helps us see Jesus better. And that's really the point, actually, of this season. Throughout the season of Advent, um, for us, we spent time talking about waiting and preparing because Advent is 
the preparation season. It's helping us get ready for the coming of Jesus at Christmas. So we spend those weeks talking about preparation. And then Christmas comes and we celebrate the birth of Jesus, the coming of God. And now we're shifting into Epiphany. And Epiphany is going to be all about not just the fact that God came, that Jesus was born, but that when God comes, particularly when he came at his birth, there had to be and there were these specific moments in which people saw him. Not like just with their eyeballs, but people perceived him. He was made manifest. He was revealed for who he was, which I think is so interesting for us to think about. I'm so thankful that the church calendar has invited the church with a capital C into a space where we can reflect on what that means John 1 was the assigned text for last week for the Christmas, the one Sunday in the Christmas season. And you're all familiar with John 1. Um, But this part, this verse, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's Christmas. We celebrate that fact. God came and he dwelt with us. Incarnation. Wild stuff. But then the second part of the verse, and we have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son. That part of the verse is epiphany. That's what this season is about. Not just that he came, but then he came and he was made manifest, which is what the word epiphany comes from. It comes from a Greek word that means to make manifest or manifestation. God was manifest. He was made known. Among us, he was glorified. We got to see his glory. And the church is going to call us over these next few weeks to reflect about what that means to behold the glory of Jesus. What is his glory? What does it mean to behold it? And here's the thing that I love, especially um, at the ripe old age of 39, having been with the Lord since I was nine, so 30 years of my life spent um, with various degrees of commitment following Jesus. And along the way, I've learned a thing or two. I've seen him. I've perceived him, seen him glorified in my own life, in the world around me. But the great promise, I think, um, the exciting thing about the church calendar is the reminder that, hey, we're not just going to like think about how Jesus was made manifest to John the Baptist or how he was made manifest to the Magi or all these people that saw Jesus beheld his glory way back then. That's fine to do and important maybe even. But we also need to be reminded of the fact that there's a promise in this that you and I, no matter how long we have maybe been with Jesus, and if you have counted yourself a Christian for a long time, but never would be able to say yourself, I have beheld his glory, which I would submit to you are different things. You can keep company with Jesus for a very long time and never behold his glory. You can be in his circles. Be around him, be proximate. But beholding him, seeing him glorified in your life and in your heart, now that's something to be excited about, expectant about. And the church calendar is going to say, hey, it is a part of your life with God. You can hope to have these epiphanies, these aha moments, like the light bulb, you know, gets turned on, the light comes, and then we have a revelation as a result of this aha moment of which, you know, there will be many in your life period, but in your life with God. You'll have these kind of like, aha, I get it, I see it. And a lot of the time, y'all, I think our associations with that kind of thing is that we assume that that will oftentimes happen through learning new stuff. 
I can go to a Bible study or I can listen to a podcast or I'll hear a sermon or something and it will click and I'll have an aha moment. And that's what we hope for. And that's good. Nobody loves that kind of aha moment more than me. My big old nerdy heart. My life with God has been fueled by those. I love learning new things. Knowledge is powerful. It is a kind of source of revelation, one means of it anyway. But what is challenging to me about this season and about the text that we're going to be looking at is that it actually, in the Bible, when people have an epiphany or a revelation of who Jesus is, it's not because they learned new information. Something else is happening. They weren't taught a new thing that they figured out here and then it like opened up their heart. It's like it happens in the reverse. I experience something of who God is. I see Jesus, and then it unlocks things here. That's powerful stuff. And I think what the church is trying to get us to remember is that that is on offer for you. That in our life of faith, we need to be hopeful and expectant that we can have those kinds of moments still, no matter how long it's been, with and of Jesus, that he could be glorified, could be revealed to us not just through what we learn, but something that we see of him. That's what the story of Jesus' baptism, I think in particular. It's interesting to me that this is a story that the lectionary writers, presumably inspired by the Holy Spirit, choose to sit and to put in front of us. It's this story of seemingly on the surface, you know, one no doubt you've heard a hundred times. But, you know, nothing like all that extraordinary happens, at least on the surface of it. And yet this is the text that we're going to kick off the epiphany season with. Epiphany is something is happening in this moment in which God's glory is made manifest. What is it? I think before we can understand that, we probably need to understand something about glory. When we think about glory... In the Bible, I assume our minds go to specific moments like, oh, I don't know, Sinai. The glory of God was on the mountain and the glory of God was made manifest in things like smoke and fire. and It shook with the presence of God. Visible signs, powerful, supernatural even signs of God's presence. Or maybe you think of the temple. You know, there are these different moments throughout the Old Testament where the glory of God is said to have filled the temple and it is manifest in a number of ways. Light, smoke, fire. In each of these moments, there's a kind of like fear and trembling that's associated with it. It's a demonstration of God's like power, his strength, his might. When we think similarly of glory in like our world, outside of the Bible, our associations are probably like a similar we think about, um, probably most easily, the glory of humans being associated with fame and achievement, right? To see a person in all of her glory or all of his glory is to see them like really elevated in status. They have accomplished great things. They've achieved great things. I went, um, had, well, this is now Circle of Trust. Welcome to the Circle of Trust. I had a really hard day one day and um, I knew it was gonna be hard. And I also knew that Beyonce's Renaissance tour film was going to be playing at the movie theater that afternoon. And so 
here's my confession, your priest and pastor went directly to see Beyonce after my extraordinarily hard morning. And I texted Nicholas, who's um, my accountability and the head of our vestry, and I said, I just need you to know that for the next three hours, I will be at the theater watching Beyonce and recovering, and I'm doing it on work hours. So there you go. Uh, <laughs> um, but that's a specific kind of glory. I'm just going to tell you the glory that is Beyonce's glory. And we, like, we see it, and we like, yeah, that's it. All the lights, the, like, the fame, it's power, you know? In the ancient world, it, glory was directly associated with military power. So your ability to vanquish or conquer, your might, was directly correlated to your glory. That's what it was. What it is? So throughout, like in our world, glory is something that you can achieve, that you earn. It's not inherent or intrinsic to you. You achieve it, you earn it, you steal it, you take it by force, and you can lose it. Former glory is an expression that we use, often wrongly and tackily associated with people who age, you know? Now she's not what she was in her former glory. Boo. <laughs> Those are cheap, cheap associations. Us trying to grasp at something. What do we mean? What does it mean to be glorified? Whereas the, glo the glory of Jesus, specifically the glory of God, is something else. Namely, it cannot be earned or achieved. God's glory is, conversely to ours, intrinsic to himself. It's always there. It is who he is, regardless of whether or not we perceive it or are aware of it. Here's what's so fascinating to me about the New Testament, is that people want to contrast the demonstrations of God's glory. Oh, well, God came at Sinai and he came in the temple and it was such an obvious and evident manifestation of his glory. But then the God made known in Jesus Christ comes and God's hidden. He hides his glory in the flesh of Jesus and I see what we mean, because there's nothing on the surface of Jesus that is necessarily glorious. When you beheld him just as he was as a person, you wouldn't look at him and have the same reaction that you had of a trembling and smoke-filled, fire-filled Sinai. One looks obviously glorious, and the other one is just like, you know, a guy. Actually, the prophet said, one from whom men hide their faces. There was nothing in his presence that compelled us. It's kind of ordinary looking, actually. Nothing about an infant that's inherently or intrinsically glorious. And so what I find fascinating is the question is, is it that God's glory was being revealed here in the Old Testament and hidden in the person of Jesus? Or is, that God's, is it, rather, that God's glory is being revealed in one way here and in another way here, but revealed and made known nonetheless? There is a particular kind, an aspect of God's glory that he's trying to get us to see in the face of Jesus Christ. Paul will say in 2 Corinthians, Oh, and the light of God is shown in our hearts. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God we have beheld in the face of Jesus Christ. We have beheld the glory of God in the face of Jesus. So what is it that God's glory means? What is it that he's most proud of? What is his radiance? What is it that he's trying to get us to see? 
when I look at the baptism of Jesus and I think about that question in particular, I suspect that if you were to ask someone, someone who had been to seminary, of course, what it, how, in what way is God's glory revealed in the baptism of Jesus? Well, they would say, well, you know, you understand this is where the Trinity is revealed. And they wouldn't be wrong. The Trinity, here we see this really powerful, beautiful moment. The Holy Spirit is there, descending, made manifest. His presence is there. The voice of God the Father, Jesus. We see this triune God. It's a beautiful revelation of the Trinity. That's true. But I think something else is happening. The stories of Jesus in which his glory is revealed share a common trait. He's revealed here at his baptism, which was something that every ordinary person did. His glory is said to have been revealed when the Magi came to visit, and what they beheld was not a king in all of his pomp and circumstance, but an ordinary toddler in a modest house. Can you even imagine? You have traveled what is likely, y'all, some Far East Asia all the way to Judea to find yourself in a modest home because God has told you that a great king has been born and you open the door and behold an ordinary toddler. The glory of God. Jesus' first miracle was performed at a wedding in Cana when the wine ran out. And it wasn't a miracle, you know, had it been me, I would have been like, these are my miracle fingers. I stand back, everybody. Behold the glory of God. And then, you know, water to wine. And I would have assumed the more everyone cheers and applauds and the bigger brouhaha we make all to God's glory. You know, that's what Christians love to say. Oh, to God be the glory. Oh, right, right, right. To God to be the glory. God be glorified in this great, big, awesome thing that I just did. And that's how God is glorified. And yet in the story of Jesus, the wedding of Cana, Jesus comes, he turns the water to wine, and he tells nobody. Nobody knows. In what way is that a manifestation of glory? Do you know if you had asked Jesus, Lord, when will you be glorified? Which, of course, everyone assumed that the glorification of Jesus, of the Messiah, would be when he vanquished his enemies. It would be the downfall of Rome. And yet when the disciples asked Jesus when he would be glorified, what did he say? The hour of his glorification was going to be what? His crucifixion. His cross. So what does it say to us about a God who chooses to make his glory known in moments like these? I think when Jesus stepped onto the shores of the Jordan, which of course was the beginning of his ministry, he had just come out of the wilderness, and now he's entering into something new, into a new season of his life. And I believe that there had to be some equivalent of Jesus looking at the Father and saying something like this, I'm going in. I'm going in. I'm going into their experience. I'm going into the sin. I'm going into the brokenness. I'm going into the pain. 
I'm going to put myself all the way down in it. I'm going to let it wash over me and over my head, and I'm going to come out through the other side, and I'm going to do it because I love them. I love them. And I'm going to prove that my love for them is stronger than their sin, than their brokenness, than all the hate, than all the death and disease in this world. I'm going to show them that my love is stronger. Not my muscle or my might, but my love is stronger. I have no doubt in my whole mind and heart that the greatest glory that there is for Jesus, the reason that he is worshipped from every square corner of heaven, the reason that he is sung about and praised endlessly is not because of his might and his muscles. It is because of the glory of his heart, y'all. It is the love of Jesus that fuels the praise of heaven. It's his goodness, his love for you, his love for this world, his love for me. That is a glorious thing. It is the love of Jesus. Fleming Rutledge, she's an Episcopal priest and one of the heroes of my heart. She was one of the first women to be ordained in the Episcopal Church, and she's conservative theologically, and by that I mean she's an Orthodox creedal Christian, which means she has fought tooth and nail to hold on to historic resurrection and the importance, the centrality of the cross in places like the Episcopal Church. And she says this in a book she wrote recently on Epiphany. The glory of the love of Jesus is not the same as human love because his glory is something that is impossible for unaided humanity. Namely, it is able to triumph over all that would destroy it. I hope you have many epiphanies of Jesus. I hope you come to see him in so many different lights and that you appreciate and adore and respect so many things about who he is. But I promise you the greatest epiphany that you could have about who Jesus is is that the love that God has for you is stronger than anything you're up against or going through. It is the strongest force in the universe. It is the stuff out of which the world was made. It is the stuff out of which the world was redeemed. This same Jesus, who has conquered death and sin, lives now to give me the kind of love that can push through all the hard stuff I have to push through and go through. And it's not, y'all, just about the strength of my mind or my abilities, or what I can do or achieve or accomplish. It's not any of that. It's that his love working within me by his spirit can be stronger than the stuff that I'm up against. When we think of what it means to glorify God, we oftentimes assume that, you know, the more money I can make or the bigger a thing can be, then God will be glorified through it. This is a personal pet peeve for mine in the, of mine in the church. Not everything that is big is big to the glory of God. Not everything that grows, grows to the glory of God. Not every dollar we earn, we earn to the glory of God. Can God be glorified in those things? Yes. And I pray that he is glorified in those things. 
Does he build things to then be glorified in them and through them? Yes, thanks be to God. But you know what is really, really true that more of us should probably hold and say is that on the way to building that big glorious thing, you had to go through a lot to get there. And all the struggle that you went through, all the failure that you went through, if you can go through that in a way that brings honor to Jesus, then he is glorified. That is the glory of the cross. What is the glory of the cross? Paul talked about it all the time. I glory in the cross. In this struggle, in the choosing Jesus when things are hard, that Jesus was glorified in moments when he chose to forgive those who nailed him to the cross. He was glorified in the moments when he chose to refuse hate or fear, to push through and persevere. Then God was glorified in, in him and through him. Yes, in his resurrection. Yes. But it was a crowning achievement of a lot of steps of obedience along the way. And so here's my question for you. What I am thankful for about this Jesus is that your stuff, your weaknesses, right now maybe the thing that you are going through that would threaten to rob you of love or the ability to love, the thing that makes you feel defensive or angry, frustrated or afraid. I think Epiphany is an invitation for us to remember that it is that thing through which and by which Jesus can be and will be glorified. He has chosen it, not just your successes or your achievements or your acts of obedience, but the nobody's looking, I'm doing it in secret, and I'm doing it and it's really hard, that those moments can be and are places where Jesus believes himself to have been most glorified. That's good stuff. Over my life, in other words, all of the things that somebody else might look at, and if they were going to put up a chart and be like, oh, Ashley, she did this, to God be the glory. She did this, to God be the glory. She did this, to God be the glory. Here's what I'm telling you. Jesus' list will be different. It won't be the same list. When nobody was looking, she did this. That person who was hard to love, she did this. When she thought I didn't hear her, or I wasn't there, she prayed anyway. In those moments, there is an invitation to know and see the Lord, to see him glorified in a way that you, yes, may see him over here, but it will be different. You will see something different of Jesus in moments like that. To God be the glory. This Jesus. Into the water, out the other side. Oh, so good. But you got to go into the water before you get out the other side. This Jesus turns the wine, the water to wine. So good. But you got to run out of wine first. And when you run out of wine, he's saying, can you trust me that I can be glorified here when the wine has run out? This Jesus to the cross. And yes, he will step out of the tomb. But we go to the cross first. And this is his glory. Holy Spirit, Lord, will you help us? 
to hear you and see you, Jesus. I pray now, Lord, that we would search our own lives and hearts, God, for the places where the wine has run out, for the place, Lord, of our sin, where we feel defeated. Would you put yourself, Lord, squarely in those places and would you, God, announce your glory, Jesus? Would you bring your love to those places, Lord? Help us, Jesus, to see you. In your name we pray, amen.